Well, welcome to the seventh, can you believe it already, the seventh session of TLS. Um, it's snowing again for the third time, which is quite amazing. So we're a little light on numbers, um, but we do have scones, so that's the important thing. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast, very welcome. Um, this is actually the third of a group of three sessions, really. I mean, they all kind of link together, but the... Um, the sessions that we did on the gospel and on atonement are really uh, foundational for what we're going to be talking about today. So if you haven't heard those yet, then I suggest you go and uh, listen to those ones first. Um, before I get into the subject of this, uh, this morning, what I thought I would do is just quickly go and recap on those two sessions um, that I just mentioned because they really are quite important. The the session on the gospel, we looked at that and we saw how huge the gospel is and how God has always had one plan, a single plan through Israel for the world. And um, we looked at how they were in uh, what they considered to be an ongoing exile. Uh, one thing I didn't mention uh, back then was uh, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel's in exile with um, with the people and he reads in Jeremiah and he reads um, that the exile is supposed to last 70 years so he starts to pray and he prays and prays and, and he doesn't get an answer for quite a while because there's all sorts of things going on in the spiritual realm but eventually the angel gets to him and says and the answer basically is not yet the 70 years has come to an end but the answer is 77s are decreed for you and it's 70 weeks of years so like 490 years and in one sense the 70 year did come to an end and the exile did finish but in another sense there was another 490 years to go before the real end of exile happened and so in in a sense they came back into the land the exile was over however they were still under foreign domination they were still under occupation they was not their own they didn't have their own king they didn't have their own um, autonomy back so there was a real sense that they felt that we're still um, in exile it still hasn't ended and so they were looking for a new exodus they were looking for a, a release from exile and uh, this is the backdrop to when the angel the same angel as it happens appears and says right um, you know, you're going to have a son, Mary, and he's going to be called Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And this is not just about us being forgiven for our sin. It's also about the fact that the exile happened because of the sin of the nation. And they knew that in order to be released from the exile and have this new exodus, there had to be a national forgiveness of sins. So it's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. And so they... Uh, this announcement that this forgiveness of sins was coming meant that they were able to become a proper nation again, but not just any nation, but the nation God had chosen to bring his blessing to the world. And they saw themselves in the light of God's promise to Abraham. So there was a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would form a massive family and that they would bring blessing to the whole world. And so God's recovery program, if you like, to, to undo the effects of the fall, but also to, to bring his glory and his blessing to every nation. 
was all bound up with Abraham's children, Israel, but they were unable to do it because of their disobedience to the covenant and that had brought them into exile, etc, etc. So in order to get back to their job, to their, Im to their image bearing vocation, they had to have their sins forgiven, come out of exile, have this new exodus and then they would be able to do it. And in our session on the atonement, um, we talked about that a bit further and said that the the problem had been that they'd been unfaithful to the covenant and that meant that the curses, the covenant curses in, in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy had come upon them and therefore that was why they were in exile, that was why they couldn't, the, the blessing of God couldn't get out to the rest of the world through them because they themselves needed rescuing. And so Jesus steps in. Jesus is the, the faithful Israelite that God has been looking for all along. So he steps in in the place of Israel, on behalf of Israel. He takes upon himself the covenant curses. He exhausts every last drop of what was there so that the covenant can then be renewed. And in him, the God receives the obedience and um, that, that Israel was, was meant to give but was unable to and therefore the blessing can then get out to the world. So he steps in as Israel's substitute, as Israel's representative, um, takes the curses upon himself and in a very sort of mysterious way also for the rest of the world as well because Israel was meant to suffer for the world. Isaiah 53 um, it is about Jesus, but it's also, in a sense, about God's corporate son, Israel, suffering on behalf of the world and then bringing, somehow bringing peace to the whole, the, the whole earth. Uh, now, of course, Israel couldn't do that, but Jesus steps in and does it. So it is about Jesus. Um, but in, in suffering, in dying, in taking those covenant curses, he also then opens the way for the rest of the nations to be released from their own slavery to sin. To receive their own exodus and suddenly the whole project is back on track. So the plan that God originally had, <coughs> which was to take Abraham's family and use them to bring blessing to the world, is still on track. But now you're not part of Abraham's family just because of uh, your genetics, or your, you know, your human descent, but you're part of Abraham's family because of faith. And so now Jew and Gentile all, all are welcome all can be part of this new Israel but it's always the same plan from the beginning. Um, so that is what we got to in the last two sessions um, but in order to understand big swathes of Romans and Galatians and understand what it is that God has done for us we need to understand these things called justification and righteousness. Now I say things but it's really just one thing and uh, we'll come on to that in a bit. Um, but the point is, what has God made us and um, what is it that the cross actually achieved for us personally um, that makes us part of this? So I'm going to start with, a, that, that was all just a big introduction, I'm going to start with a, this quote from Tom Wright um, and this gives us a bit of a flavour and a clue as to what's coming. He says, God is rescuing us from the shipwreck of the world, not so that we can sit back and put our feet up in his company, but so that we can be part of his plan to remake the world 
we are in orbit around God and his purposes not the other way around and so um, the whole big story that I've outlined in and we've covered in these previous two sessions it, it's trying to encourage us to avoid this rather narrow individualistic worldview and see this the massive nature of God's plan throughout the Bible his covenant with Israel and so on and um, and so that's the light in which we're going to study justification and righteousness now it may be surprising uh, to some but most of the views that people have the common views that people have on these things are not actually shaped by biblical truth but they're shaped by what happened in the Reformation in the 1500s so you've got the um, the 16th century reformers like Luther and Calvin their thinking on justification and righteousness has become what everybody believes and yet the problems that they were grappling with are different to what Paul was grappling with and what we grapple with so over the last few decades starting in the 1970s a guy called Sanders and, and other people and culminating in people like um, Tom Wright they've really started to rediscover aspects of the Jewish thinking around this and, and understand better what Paul was actually talking about um, so letters like Romans and Galatians you know what what did Paul mean when he's talking about the law and covenant and righteousness and it's basically down to good hermeneutics you know you've got to understand what he meant what was he writing about what did he think um, and, and they're just trying to get at those things and it became known as something called the new perspective on Paul or the new perspective and they were sort of innocently doing all this what they believed was quite good good hermeneutics good expanding our understanding but it really ruffled some feathers and so you had people like John Piper um, a sort of reformed uh, theologian Calvinist type theologian you know so perhaps relatively conservative evangelical but very influential writer really getting hot under the collar and saying N.T. Wright is basically undermining the whole fabric of our understanding of salvation and he's taking the attention away from Christ and uh, and Tom Wright and others are going well then no <laughs> that's not what we were doing we didn't think we were doing that um, and so John Piper writes a book basically attacking Tom Wright's views not not attacking Tom Wright because he's a he's a he's a good guy you know he didn't do it in a in a disrespectful way but he was very firmly saying you know we've got to stay stick to the gospel um, and and Tom bless him decided to write a book back so they kind of <laughs> it's like a massive artillery <laughs> firing so Tom writes another book called Justification um, God's Plan and Paul's Vision and a lot of this actually is taken from there so if you wanted to get into it a bit more that that's one of the places you could go to but just explaining saying look no I, I wasn't kind of undermining the gospel you know in fact I'm, I'm making it better <laughs> you know? um, so let's have a look at what the the traditional view is first on on these things and and this is um, the sort of thing where if, I don't know if anybody's come across this concept of the Roman road where you take several scriptures from Romans and it's basically all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and you know and, and it it, it's that kind of thing that we're looking at here so um, it's what Tom Wright calls a works contract so the way that this works and this is the way a lot of evangelicals think um, because that's the way they've been taught 
so salvation operates in this way God requires good works so God has a certain standard that we need to meet and we can't do it we failed to deliver on that so there's this massive debt that we can't pay but Jesus succeeded in gaining credit with God by his own works so not only did he not sin but he built up a massive positive balance of righteous acts and doing you know obedient things and through the cross pays off our debts but then makes available his credit status um, to us so if you imagine it being like a, a, a set of accounts we have a debit column and a credit column our debit column is cancelled and Jesus is filling up our credit column with his righteousness his good works his you know moral goodness and he transfers those benefits to us and therefore God can receive us on the basis of the works of Christ so it's still it's actually it's salvation by works paradoxically um, but it's the works of Christ or you know his effort rather than our own um, so according to this God's righteousness or Christ's righteousness which actually Paul never even talks about but it's seen as moral uprightness that can be transferred to us so it's called imputation God imputes it to us is what they think it's almost like righteousness is this kind of substance or a gas that can be passed from one place to another um, and God has to kind of give us the credit and the benefit of his righteousness and that's the way people understand it and so they also therefore believe that because we haven't got any of our own um, the Old Testament law and Jewish attempts to keep the Old Testament law they see that as hopeless legalism basically a failed attempt to bring salvation that was replaced by a better plan in other words justification by faith so you've got this double imputation going on our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us that's the way they see it um, now there are a few problems with that mainly the, that it's wrong <laughs> um, very bold statement of mine but um, as I see it uh, this is this is of course a, a discursive forum so <laughs> I shouldn't really just say well that's right and that's wrong uh, you know you can challenge me um, but if we do take it that way uh, we're not going to understand quite a bit of Romans and Galatians why for example does Paul keep going on about Abraham you know and, and what they tend to think is Abraham's just being used as an example of somebody who was justified by faith not by works but actually it's a lot deeper than that so before we get too much into that where, where did this idea of God transferring his righteousness to us come from um, a lot of it came from a misunderstanding of the reformers now the reformers were brilliant they did an amazing job and God really used them but they weren't perfect and they didn't have the whole answer to everything but they were struggling against massive corruption and huge amounts of legalism and religion in the 16th century against the in the Catholic Church and so Luther was reading Galatians for example and he equated the legalism he saw around him in the church with Jewish law keeping and you can understand that that why he might do that so the question he was addressing was do you get saved by buying indulgences and 
doing confessions and going to church and saying mass and whatever else uh, or do you get saved through faith in Christ and so he that was the question he was addressing but he equated um, the Jews trying to keep their law as the same as this this religious and legal stuff legalistic stuff that was going on so for him Moses was a bad guy you know the law was bad even though actually Paul says it wasn't bad it was good <laughs> it just made us conscious of sin you know but um, and that's colored a lot of theology to this very day now Calvin took things slightly differently he wasn't completely right either um, the way we now understand it but Calvin actually believed that the law was given to a people who were already redeemed so he was actually slightly more onto the right lines but these days um, most people accept that the Jews were not trying to get salvation by works they weren't trying to be saved by keeping the law they knew that they were a people chosen by God's grace alone you know they'd been brought out of Egypt you know they'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt God had chosen Abraham not because he was better than anyone else but because it was just God's grace so when they were given the law it wasn't to achieve salvation it was to live it out properly um, and it was a sign that they were already God's people so the problem was not that they were trying to achieve salvation through the law but rather they, they they'd forgotten that they were actually God's people through God's choice and God's grace and they started to rely on the outward sign to prove that who they were um, so they would kind of let go of their faith and trust in God and they were relying and trusting on the outward sign and said it doesn't matter what we believe or what we say or what we do as long as we do these things then we're we're in you know so it's, it's slightly different so in Galatians Paul isn't actually contrasting legalism per se with faith it's Galatians is not about works versus faith Galatians is about do we need to mark ourselves out as God's people by following certain aspects of the law um, do, do the non-Jews non do the Gentiles need to be made to obey the Jewish law and become Jews in order to to be in uh, to show that they belong to God's people so Paul is saying in Galatians that faith is what got them in and faith is the only necessary sign it's the only thing that marks you out as, as a member of God's covenant community there's no need to be marked out through special laws uh, but if you think about the problem with Galatians is that somebody's trying to get them to be circumcised Peter is pulling back and not eating with them so that they, they want to follow the food laws um, you know it's about it was usually around Sabbath laws to do with food and circumcision and those were the things that marked the Jews out as different to the Gentiles and so what these guys from James who came to Galatia were saying was we need to follow those laws we need to, this is what marks us out as God's people and so Peter's thinking oh gosh yeah you, ooh, yeah right then so he pulls back from people that are not doing that and divides the body and Paul says you know no you know if you rebuild what you destroyed in other words if I if I build back up this 
dividing wall of hostility that he calls it in another place by trying to follow the law and that this law basically does two things one it tells me that I'm a lawbreaker because you can never keep the whole thing and two it sets you it divides the body of Christ you know it's, it means you're trying to be Jew, Jewish and all those non-Jewish Christians you're basically cutting yourself off from Christ because you're cutting yourself off from his body um, and if we see Galatians in the light of that, it's, it kind of makes an awful lot more sense. Um, it's all about the single plan of God through Israel for the world. So we'll go into that in a little bit more detail in, in the next session of what, as to what being part of that covenant community was. Um, but people, as I say, they often read Galatians and they think it's all generally just about trying to achieve salvation by works and or not but actually it's more about what marks us out as the people of God and and basically being united Jew and Gentile together so why is this why is this stuff about justification and righteousness an issue <clears throat> well as I say it's partly the, the misunderstanding of the reformers but also there's a language problem um, some of the confusion comes because we've got two different word groups in English. So we have the word just, which is an adjective, meaning someone who's kind of fair and so on and is, is upright or whatever you want to say. And that has a noun justice and a verb to justify and then another sort of abstract noun justification. So you've got these, this group of words linked with just so justice justify justification and then there's another group of words which are righteous and righteousness there isn't a verb to righteousify if there was it might actually be easier to, to do this you know to make right or people have actually had a go at creating this sort of word you know to try and overcome this but now the problem is in English these words mean slightly different things to some people so for example some people assume that righteousness is about your personal morality your ethics and you know you, what you are in yourself and justice is about treating other people fairly um, now that may be true in English the problem is in Greek and Hebrew in the original languages of the Bible both both of the relevant languages there aren't two words there's only one so where it's sometimes it's translated as justice or justification or ju whatever sometimes it's translated as righteousness but they're the same word in the Bible and this causes a lot of confusion so in some places in the Bible it talks about God's righteousness in other parts it talks about God's justice and it as soon as somebody says God's justice we kind of imagine God striding around with a with a sword and <laughs> did, did, you know administering justice but God's righteousness we think oh that's God's moral uprightness you know but actually it's the same word so what does it mean you know um, and the the Bible's the Bible translators actually betray their theology sometimes in the way in the word they choose to represent this word in Hebrew or the word in in Greek so that's kind of set the scene um, we're going to have a, a very short break. Uh, what's the time yet? So we will have a fairly short break. We'll have a uh, one of Ruth's scones this time, which will be very nice. And there's plenty of them to go around. <laughs> so, um, but 
we're going to have a, a bit of a discussion. Obviously, you're free to discuss anything I've said so far and challenge or question or, or whatever. Um, but the couple of questions that we could have a particular look at are what are the possible unintended and unwelcome consequences of a works contract view of salvation? Now, it may be that you've always had that view and um, and understandably so, because that's what's always put out. Um, but what are the possible unintended and unwelcome consequences? So what, if you think about the implications for our view of God and of ourselves within his plan, if it's about this kind of transaction going on, what might be the, the bad side of that? And, and or, secondly, if we no longer accept imputed righteousness, so this transfer of God's righteousness to us, if, we say, if we're going to say, actually, we don't believe that anymore, what dangers might that hold? You know, why might John Piper have got worried, for example? So these are not easy questions. <laughs> you know, it's not, I'm not, you know, they're quite chunky questions. So, um, you know, feel free to talk around them. And then uh, hopefully we'll clarify a few things in the, the second part. So... Um, the discussion uh, we've had an interesting discussion but I did ask a couple of really hard questions um, I mean from my point of view the, the consequences of a works contract view it kind of makes God out to be a bit of a box ticker a kind of you know a little bit petty kind of, have you done that? Mm, no okay oh, did Jesus do that? yep yeah, he did tick 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 um, also it's quite individualistic you know it's sort of has you know, God credits to me righteousness for the things I've done, I'm sorted. You know, so it's very individualistic and it's very transactional. It's, it's almost mechanical. It's, it's about accounting rather than about love. You know, so that, those are the sort of, to me, those are the sort of negative views of um, this works contract view of salvation. But if we don't accept imputed righteousness, um, People then go, well, but if, if God doesn't give me the credit for having fulfilled the law, then I haven't fulfilled the law and I, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, how will Christians then behave if they haven't been given God's righteousness to, to do that? And so it's, as I say, that's why this new perspective on Paul kind of stirred up... Um, some issues because it was much wider much actually I believe more biblical and had better her hermeneutics and it widens our understanding of God's plan but the new perspective on Paul is, is much more than about individual personal salvation it's about how God makes a single people and how God joins us all together and so there was much more of an emphasis on the corporate, and I think that's one of the things that worried people like John Piper, because they're saying, well, surely you still believe in individual salvation and individual sin and forgiveness. And, and in his follow-up book, Tom Wright says, yes, I absolutely do. You know, we never said that wasn't important. It's just you've got to understand it in the light of all this other stuff. So let's have a look at what um, justification and righteousness mean according to Paul if we understand it from his Jewish background you know the Jewish first century background so if you imagine a court of law I've got a little picture here of a judge um, in front of a court and there's two people there you're there and somebody else and 
you've got a complaint between you. One of you is in the right and one of you is in the wrong. The judge's job is to come and listen to the evidence and then say, right, you are in the right. Now, he might actually be wrong. You know, he, he could have got it wrong or, you know, the judge could be a right character. You know, he, he could, you know, it doesn't matter what the judge is like. But the fact is, when the court finds in your favour, that means you are declared legally to be in the right. And that is what justification is. And that is what righteousness is. There's always this law court idea in the background. It's more than a law court, which we'll go on to look at. But Paul always has this kind of legal idea of being declared in the right. So righteousness is a status, not a virtue. It's not moral uprightness. The judge, as I say, could the judge could be quite a dishonest judge, but he is legally found in your favour. Um, but it's nothing to do with the judge's own righteousness being passed on to you. That's a completely independent thing. Um, but the Jews always believed that God was... Uh, one of the images they had of God was that he was the judge, and at the end of time he was going to set everything right. He was going to declare Israel to be in the right, to really be God's people, and you know, bring justice to them and sort out the world. And so that was in Paul's thinking. So righteousness is the declaration of God that you are in the right, that you have, you know, you've been declared not guilty. Now, so what is the righteousness of God then? The Bible does speak of God's own righteousness. In Romans 3, 21, um, it talks about, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, you look at all the different translations and so many of them translate it wrongly because of their wrong view of, of imputed righteousness. And, and some of the translations, the New Living I think is quite bad on this, um, it talks about a righteousness is given to us from God, but it's not. It's talking about God's own righteousness. So when Paul talks about God's righteousness or God's justice, which is the same word, don't forget, in the mind of Paul, God's righteousness is always about his faithfulness to his covenant. Now, why do we say that? Well, they saw themselves as covenant people. They saw themselves as people who had been chosen by God. And, you know, looking back to Abraham. And when they were faithful to that covenant... They were doing the right things and they were showing themselves to be God's people. But they knew that they'd been faithless actually as well. But God was always going to be faithful to the covenant. So when they're talking about the righteousness of God in the Old or the New Testament, they're thinking of God's unshakable commitment to his covenant with them. Now we don't think covenantally, so it's not in our minds when we think about it. But if you think in their way, it makes complete sense. God has promised to bless the whole world through the people that came from Abraham, um, and he is faithful to that covenant. So that is God's righteousness, his faithfulness to his covenant. Now there is a place in Philippians 3 verse 9 which talks about a righteousness that comes from God, but it's a different phrasing in the Greek. Um, so there, it does talk about a righteousness that comes from God, but that's talking about our righteous status that God has, you know, a declaration from God. But this in Romans 3 is talking about God's own righteousness, which is his faithfulness to that covenant. So this is why 
Paul keeps going on in, in Romans and Galatians, he keeps referring to Abraham. Not just as someone as, as you know, an example of someone who had faith, but because it was always God's plan to use Abraham's family to rescue the world and form a huge covenant family from his descendants. And it was never replaced with a better plan. See, the reformers believed, and, and a lot of evangelicals today believe, that God tried saving the world through law, and it failed, and he gave up on Israel and had something better, which was faith in Christ. But actually, as we've seen, I've, I've explained several times through the Gospel uh, session, the Atonement session, and today, that plan never changed. Um, it was just relaunched and renewed and refocused in Christ and then continues through the church. So Paul talks about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and he says that, um, in fact Romans 4 verse 11, it says he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so circumcision was given to him as a sign of righteousness, a sign of the righteousness that he had. But Paul's actually referring to something that happened in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11 again. And God says, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So in Genesis 17, it's a sign of the covenant. When Paul talks about it in Romans, it's a sign of righteousness. So in Paul's mind, he's replaced the word covenant with righteousness. And it's the same thing in Paul's mind. So faithfulness to the covenant is, is righteousness. So for Abraham's righteousness for Paul is his right standing in the covenant. And God's righteousness is his absolute commitment to that covenant. And you can see the link between righteousness and being faithful to the covenant. Can you see how it's a, it's a broader picture of righteousness than just, am I morally upright? It's about where do I stand in the God's great plan to save the world through the people of God? Much more corporate, less individualistic, but also more biblical. Um, it's not about me and how righteous I am. It's, am I part of God's covenant plan to bring blessing to the world? Am I one of Abraham's children who is there to bring blessing to the whole the whole universe you know um, that's what righteousness is about so um, as a, as a, it's not quite an aside but it's basically on the same lines in several places and I've given some um, references in the notes a lot of Bible translations refer to faith in Christ um, you know the, the, I'm trying to think of I got one written down here uh, well, you can look at it later anyway, it's in the notes, Romans 3.22, Galatians 2.16, Philippians 3.9, talks about faith in Christ. Now the Greek literally says the faith of Christ. And most people now are starting to realise that it's not so much talking about our faith in Christ, although the Bible does talk about our faith in Christ, so I'm not taking away from that. But there are several places where it talks about faith in Christ, where actually it means the faithfulness of Christ. So in other words, our righteousness comes not through our faith in Christ, although it is, it is in there as well,
but it's through the faithfulness of Christ. In other words, his faithful obedience to death on behalf of and in place of unfaithful Israel. And he comes and does that to fulfill and renew the covenant, to re-establish them as God's people and open up blessing and salvation to the whole world. So the faithfulness of Christ is strongly linked to God's righteousness because God's righteousness is his faithfulness to the covenant. So in Paul's mind, this faithfulness of Christ through which we're saved is about God being faithful to his covenant. So that all, if you put all that together and you look at that thinking, then that means that being justified, being declared righteous by God, means that we are vindicated as being truly part of the covenant people. So Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness, his trust and his belief in God, and it is about our response to God, and it is about our faith in God as well. But it was credited to him as righteousness because he was placing himself within that covenant that God had instituted. And he, his trust was a sign that he, was, um, he really was in that covenant. So justification is God's statement that we're part of his family. So actually justification comes after we're saved in a sense. It's all happening at the same time, but justification is the mar is, is the the affirmation, the confirmation that we actually are saved, that we are part of the covenant people, and it's marked out by our faith in Christ. And if we start to read Galatians and Romans in the light of God's massive plan of how justification is as being part of the covenant people, and we need to maintain that unity amongst us, it makes an awful lot more sense about why, why Paul's going on about not separating from the Gentiles. It makes sense about why he keeps talking about Abraham, why he seemingly goes on, because in some places he's apparently talking about salvation by uh, faith not by works and then he suddenly starts talking about the unity of Jew and Gentile. Why is he doing that? Because it's all linked together in his mind. It's about being part of the people of God. Okay, this will stretch, um, <laughs> stretch our thinking. Um, final judgment. So, <clears throat> what, why does Paul say some rather embarrassing things about um, being judged according to works. Uh, he's the great champion of justification by faith alone, you know, and the reformers were, you know, faith alone and scripture alone and, and quite rightly, and so are the, the reformed theologians now. But if you look at Romans 2 uh, from verse 6, I'll just read it out here, I've got it here. God will repay, this is Paul speaking, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And he's quoting from elsewhere in the Bible but he follows it on he says to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil there will be wrath and anger now this is all a little embarrassing for for people that are very hot on uh, justification by faith and salvation by grace because you think well hold on a minute Paul you're the great apostle of faith you know why are you talking about this and normally the answer is that they say, well, it's because he's setting something up that nobody can ever achieve. But actually, Paul doesn't seem to have a problem with, with, um, with saying these things or telling 
believers to work hard, you know, on, because of, you know, we're all going to face the judgment seat of Christ, he says, you know. Uh, in fact, Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13, the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. It doesn't seem to draw a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. Matthew 16, verse 27, Jesus said, you know, the Son of Man will, will judge people according, everyone according to what they've done. Um, now, Paul, what is he saying then? Well, he doesn't really have a problem with it, because whilst he believes that a final judgment will be on the basis of our works, stay with me here, <laughs> he knows that the Holy Spirit is empowering believers to do those works. So, our good deeds, our works, the things that we do, they are both from us, and they're inspired by God. So Paul talks about himself, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. Colossians 1, 29. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he says, I worked harder than all of them, yet it was not I, but God's grace that was with me. So there's this kind of truth intention for Paul that we do good works, but actually it's God inspiring us, it's God within us. And this it's because we're in union with God. You know, you can't almost decide who initiated that? Was it us? Yeah. Was it God? Yeah. Um, so in other words, those who are already declared righteous by God are spirit-empowered for good works, you know, the good works that he prepared in advance for us to do, it says. And we are marked out by our changed lives and good deeds. You know, James says in the Bible, faith without deeds is dead. So your faith will result in good deeds. And if you haven't got any good deeds, then it indicates that you haven't really got any faith. You know, and I think that's what Paul is saying here, that we don't earn salvation, but our status as being God's children is actually confirmed by the deeds that result. So when he's talking about those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory and honour, it's not that we're earning it, he doesn't say they will earn glory and honour, but it's we seek it, we, we seek a reward, we seek the good things that we know will come, not just for ourselves, but for God's glory and for other people. But we will actually be judged according to those uh, deeds. So the overall picture of our life, the eventual judgment of, well done, good and faithful servant, yes, you are my child, it's on the basis that the person's life of faith is demonstrating it to be so. But it doesn't mean we've earned it. It just means it's, a, it's a evidence of something that had already happened by God's grace and through faith. So the amazing thing about justification is God already knows what the judgment will be. So we will go through judgment and God will look at our lives and say, look, look at what happened. Look at what they did. That's that's my child, because they changed. You know, they did this. They they did that. Look at look at how that evidences the grace and the faith that's in them. But God already knows what that judgment will be, and so He pulls that judgment from the future into the present and declares as righteous right now. So our justification now, our being declared in the right is basically an advance notice of what that final judgment outcome will be. Um, 
and in fact the our real justification is actually our resurrection you know God through by by raising us from the dead um, he says yeah you are my child in the same way that when Jesus rose from the dead he was proved to be God's son you know it says he was raised to life for our justification so he was vindicated he, he um, I'm running slightly ahead of myself but he was vindicated when he rose again despite the fact that various human courts had said he's guilty but God rose, rose him from, raised him from the dead and that was his vindication that was his justification he was declared to have been in the right all along and the amazing thing is that we are in Christ so there are loads of scriptures um, I've put some down in the uh, in the notes here about us having died and been raised with him so we may not have you know righteousness imputed to us but what is imputed to us is Christ's death and resurrection so we died and we rose with him and we share in his vindication so just as he was raised from the dead and was therefore vindicated as God's son so we in Christ are raised from the dead and we get the benefit of his vindication of his justification um, we're taken into him and that's something that's so much better you know one of the things about in this imputation of righteousness people say yeah but I want the assurance that I have been counted as having kept the law but you know what can you really get excited about oh yeah I've kept the Torah great you know but if somebody says you are counted as having died to sin you're counted as having died and been raised with Christ raised from the dead unable to die again you know sort of uh, raised from the dead and alive to God and um, in that new creation life and being secure in him that's so much of a better assurance you know than I've kept the law um, that is really good news and of course because we're in Christ that means we're in the covenant people you know Jesus embodied Israel he represented Israel he became the true Israelite the faithful Israelite who would do for God and for the world what the what Israel natural Israel couldn't do but because we're united with him we're in Christ we are also Israel we are also in that covenant we are part of that covenant people um, in himself we are made righteous now of course being righteous means yes you're in the covenant righteousness is about I am part of that covenant people so because we died we died and we rose with him we are assured that we are forever part of that covenant and part of that people part of God's plan for the whole world so that to me is a bigger vision um, and a much more exciting vision than God has totted up my sin and cancelled it and then replaced it with something else this kind of me and God and and I'm okay now type of picture so finally um, one of the key verses that, that people who believe in double imputation use is 2 Corinthians 5 21 and it says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God 
And people sort of twist that into, oh yeah, he took away our sin and he gave us God's righteousness. But it doesn't say he gave, it doesn't say he gives us God's righteousness. It says we become the righteousness of God. But of course, we now know that God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his covenant. And that means the covenant with Abraham, his absolute commitment to reach out to all people with saving love. So that verse is actually saying that by dealing with our sin, God enables us to embody his covenant faithfulness in our lives. So we embody the righteousness of God, which is his faithfulness, his covenant love towards the whole world. We embody that within ourselves, within our lives. And that fits together with us being the image of God as human beings, and especially as God's Israel. Our, t- our task, our duty, our joy, our privilege is to be his image in the world, to represent him. Our true vocation as human beings is to embody God's image. And God, as I, I keep saying, is a relational God. He's a God of covenant. He's a God of total commitment to the other of, of love and reaching out and joining with other people. That's about covenant um, faithfulness. So we are to embody that to the world, to bring his love, to bring his covenant faithfulness. The, the amazing relationship at the heart of the Trinity is to be fleshed out in us as we draw other people into it. To me, that's much, much bigger than imputed righteousness and you too can have fulfilled the law you know <laughs> this is much more um, trinitarian you know in in uh, in its nature much wider so the covenant love that springs from god's relational nature as trinity is to be expressed in and through his people as they become the means by which god fulfills the great promise to abraham and draws people everywhere into his single family marked out as righteous through faith. So I'll just finish off with a a quote from good old Tom. Uh, He says this, Justification is not just about how I get my sins forgiven. It's about how God creates in the Messiah Jesus and in the power of his Spirit a single family celebrating their once-for-all forgiveness and their assured no condemnation in Christ through whom his purposes can now be extended into the wider world. And to me that's a proper vision of justification and righteousness, which involves the heart of God, it involves relationship, it involves us being a corporate people, and it just is mind-blowing. So, Amen.